This program provides education, not advice. Sponsors pay a fee for endorsements and interviews. See the truthayf.com disclosure page for details. This is where technology, innovation, and personal finance come together. This is the truth about your future with Rick Edelman. Brought to you by Global X ETFs, dedicated to providing investors with unexplored intelligent solutions, and by Invesco QQQ. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ, Invesco Distributors Inc. It's Friday, July 21st. Coming up on the show today, CNBC's downtown Josh Brown. The city of Lugano, Switzerland, has issued a bond. Well, nothing new about that. Governments issue bonds all the time to raise money, and investors like to buy government bonds because of the interest that they earn, and these bonds are considered very safe. Governments, after all, don't go out of business. But what makes this bond from Lugano, Switzerland, unusual, worthy of conversation? This bond was issued on the blockchain. Selling blockchain bonds is in fact becoming more and more common. The first was issued by the World Bank five years ago. It allocated, transferred, and managed the bond on a blockchain using distributed ledger technology. The European Investment Bank issued its first blockchain bond back in 2021, did another one this past November. In October of last year, Israel sold a bond using blockchain technology. More recently, in February, Hong Kong did it. In March, Brazil's central bank sold tokenized bonds for the Brazilian federal government. All of these so far have been countries selling bonds on blockchain. Lugano is now the first city to do it. It was a $108 million offering. They began sales at 9 a.m. and they sold out in 90 minutes. Big savings in time and cost. These improved efficiencies are leading people to refer to these as green bonds because of the improvement for the environment. That's what the Hong Kong Monetary Authority calls its blockchain bonds, green bonds. This is a big deal. Switzerland, in fact, is long known for its financial sophistication and that famous Swiss efficiency. Their goal, they say, is to stay at the forefront of technology. And now Japan and the United Kingdom have been talking to the Swiss about how they did it so they can do it too. And people are still skeptical at the technological benefits of blockchain and digital asset technology? If you haven't invested in any of this yet, what are you waiting for? Coming up next on The Truth About Your Future, my conversation with CNBC's downtown Josh Brown, answering the question, does crypto have a role in an advisory practice? Stay with us right here on The Truth About Your Future. The Truth About Your Future is sponsored by Global X ETFs. Automation and artificial intelligence are introducing new possibilities and upending the status quo before our very eyes. These exponential technologies are rapidly evolving, and the list of innovators leading the charge extends well past the big tech firms that dominate headlines. At Global X ETFs, we specialize in investments that look beyond household names, providing exposure to a range of companies at the leading edge of these disruptions and more. Visit GlobalXETFs.com to learn how or contact your financial advisor. The Truth About Your Future with Rick Edelman is sponsored by Charles Schwab. Schwab's passion for serving clients is more than standard practice. It's part of who they are. 
With transparent pricing, 24-7 live support, and a satisfaction guarantee, the people at Schwab go the extra mile to help you on your investing journey. They're not just financial people. They're people people, too. Learn more at schwab.com slash schwab. That's schwab.com slash schwab. Welcome back to the show. Last month, I hosted the fifth annual Vision Conference in Austin, presented by my company, DACFP, the Digital Assets Council of Financial Professionals. Vision is the longest-running digital assets investment conference that's specifically for financial advisors and accredited investors. And at this year's conference, it was our biggest ever, attended by more than 125 financial advisors and investment professionals from all over the country. One of the keynote speakers was CNBC's downtown Josh Brown, answering the question, does crypto have a role in a financial advisory practice? I wanted to share our entire conversation with you today. Here it is, unabridged and uncensored. This is, I think, going to be the most fun keynote. I've known this guy for a number of years He's a good friend of mine. He's extremely well-known and highly regarded. You see him every day on CNBC. Let's welcome our friends, downtown Josh Brown. Josh. I have to warn you, I'm wearing a wire. Be very careful these days. Are the jokes going to get better? Oh, you are too. Uh, Obviously not. Um, Okay, so... Have you ever heard of Bitcoin? I have, Your Honor. (laughs) So, (laughs) are you not nervous at all about regulatory, I I don't want to say action, but just somebody saying, okay, now we think most of these things are securities. Who is highly engaged in this market? Let's do it off the record. Let's do it on the record. Let's let's, Let's chill them the way that we've chilled the providers, the exchanges. I'm not saying it's going to happen. I'm just curious if you are at all concerned about that possibility. About the fact that the coins and tokens will ultimately be deemed securities? Well, it seems like they are now explicitly saying more and more of them are securities, which is probably what's changed from when we were here last June. Last June, it was uh, very ambiguous. It's getting less ambiguous, and there are fewer and fewer protocols that they're not including in those lists. And I tend to agree with the SEC on this. I think that the majority of these coins and tokens are securities and Uh ought to be regulated and registered as securities. And doing so would melt away not only the crazy coins and tokens that don't serve any legitimate business use, some of which are outright scams, others are nothing but marketing gimmicks. It'll just simply make them go away. But it will also provide the clarity that investors and the investment advisory community needs. So I I don't mind the SEC's insistence that so many are unregistered securities. The problem I have is that the SEC says... It's got two issues. One is the fact that they are telling you that you're operating in the sale of unregistered securities, but when some of them do attempt to register, the SEC rejects the registration. You can't have it both ways. How many, I think we're up to 43 now, the number of applications for a Bitcoin ETF that the SEC has rejected? Yeah. That's ridiculous. Uh, They'll allow the Bitcoin futures ETF 
but not a Bitcoin ETF. Right. One of the ironies about rejecting ETFs for 10 years is that in place of investors using ETFs, they're doing way worse things for themselves. So that, to me, that's like one of the great, if, if this boils down to protecting investors, why would we have a situation where we're only leaving them with some of the most reckless options as opposed to an option that, okay, maybe the regulators aren't completely comfortable with the asset class itself, but we know this wrapper. We know how this wrapper functions. We know what goes wrong with it. We know what goes right with it. Uh, we know how investors tend to utilize it in brokerage accounts. Let's just do that. If we don't do that, look at all of the other alternatives that sprout up out there that are so much worse. So given the regulatory environment right now and, and that this is going to persist for quite a while, should advisors go to the trouble of putting crypto in a portfolio or should they sit on the sidelines and wait for the dust to settle? So I don't think that there's a one-size-fits-all answer, but I think if you're an advisor um, who's dealing with clients who are in their 20s, 30s, and 40s, which we are, uh, not predominantly, but we're, we're pretty heavy in that demographic, the first thing is that you absolutely have to be able to speak on the, on the topic. You don't even have to like the topic, but it's all a scam is not an answer. Or it's not an answer that is going to land well with that demographic. And personally, I don't understand why uh, more of the people that I come across that are curious about the topic have lost money than made money on balance. Although we do have in our orbit a few whales who are very early uh, and, and did really well. But for the most part, most of the people that we talk to that are curious about crypto they either got into it in, in 27, late 2017 at the top or they got into it in uh, late 2021 at the top. Um, but regardless, they're still curious. It's an unkillable theme when you're talking to investors of that demographic. So it's not an acceptable answer. Uh, dismissal is not an acceptable answer. So that's number one. Number two, we decided that we were not going to recommend crypto, but that we were going to facilitate investments in crypto in a way that we were comfortable with, which means part of our intake, every new account, regardless of age or, or demographic or region of the country, part of our intake is, do you own crypto? And if so, please describe the way in which you own it. Um, and we'll get a lot of people that say, I just traded at Coinbase, or we'll get a lot of people that say, I just put some away and I, I don't really pay attention to it at all. Um, and then a lot of people that say, nope, I have no involvement. But that is part of our process. For the people that tell us they don't own crypto, the follow-up question from the financial planner is, do you plan to? Is there a reason why you don't? It's not, for, I don't think it's for us to say you have to. I think it's just important for us to understand where they're coming from. For the people who own crypto, it's tricky because in a lot of cases, they feel as though they're more sophisticated than we are. And they might be. And we do have clients who have made their money in the crypto industry, and they're utilizing us to invest in things other than crypto. So you would think like, oh, it's a crypto person. They're talking to Josh's firm. They'll probably let Josh's firm do crypto for them. Sometimes it's the opposite. They say, I'm all set on crypto, and I know more than you do, but I'm glad that you could talk with me about it. I'm glad that you can build my crypto ownership into the financial planning work that you're doing and the volatility of the asset class, et cetera. So there are a million reasons why everyone in this room who is client-facing has to be able to discuss this asset class. It won't apply to every client. 
The last thing I want to say. So when I say facilitate, if somebody comes to us and says, I think that crypto should be part of what I'm doing, or I'm interested if it should be, or whatever, we didn't have a product that we felt comfortable recommending. We were not going to put people in the individual equities because we don't do single stock analysis uh, of any companies. It's not part of what we're doing. So we weren't, weren't going to do a one-off so that I could give people earnings expectations on Marathon. Um, nothing wrong with Marathon. It's just not, it's out of our wheelhouse. There is no ETF. There's a couple of SMAs, and I like those people. I like the, the was it Eagle Brook? And Chris King is uh, here. I like, uh, at I like the Chris event, King. So Chris is right back there. Yeah. There's a few SMA solutions, but we basically said look, all we want is an index. And here's why it's probably not impossible, it's just very unlikely that Bitcoin is going to do another 20,000% return, right? Like it's, it's really a once you mean in a life. 41 million. Fine, but I'm saying like within the last few years, it's very, very unlikely um, that, that that's going to repeat itself just because the, 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 yeah. the size of it. It's not going to be $80 trillion. Okay. So you don't want to just put all your eggs in the Bitcoin basket because one of the appealing things about crypto is when one of these protocols or tokens does take off, the gains are in the thousands or tens of thousands of percent. So having some exposure to that was important to us. So building the index, owning 10 of them, as opposed to just betting on the one that already worked. So that was a key part of what we did. And so that index approach squares with what we're doing for clients in every other asset class. It's what we're doing in fixed income. It's what we're doing in direct indexing, ETFs. So the crypto index that um, we created with uh, WisdomTree was our way of saying, if you're going to do crypto with us, this is the way that we feel comfortable doing it for you. And that is what we thought of when we created the, the strategy, and that's how we run it today. And how has client reaction been to that? Um, in 2021, people were pretty excited about it. <laughs> uh, in 2022, um, clients really were just like, all right, I get it. It's, you know, it's cyclical, just like stocks, just like, and then this year there have actually been some, there, there has been more interest to the point where my research people are actually writing about it to clients again. So we're no different than anyone else. When line goes up, we're excited. When line goes down, we're not excited. You're not supposed to be that way uh, in investing but it's human nature, clients, advisors, researchers, analysts, strategists, that part is not gonna change. I think the thing that Rick was saying though, if you don't, I think the thing that you were saying though, just about being more engaged during the cyclical downturns is the right thing. And I'll, I'll tell a very quick story. In 2019, uh, Coindesk, which they host this thing called Consensus every year in New York City, um, asked me to come back and MC their annual event at the Marriott Marquis. Raise your hands if you've been to the Marriott Marquis. Okay, it's like a zoo, filled with zoo animals, right? Yes? Okay. This is a room, a ballroom, that I think normally holds like four or 5,000 people. Yeah, it's like almost half of Madison Square Garden. In 2019, Bitcoin was $3,000. I MC'd the event. I was there for seven hours. They paid me. Um, a lot of my friends went on stage, so it was fun for me. Uh, but honestly, 
I think there were like 20 people in the audience. And 20 people in this room would be like, all right, I get it, you know? 20 people in the Marriott Marquis is hilarious. <laughs> like comical, like almost like, is this a dress rehearsal? Is the real event tomorrow? And that's Bitcoin 3000. It's always going to be that way. So when Rick talks about getting more interested in the downturn, I, I mean, that, that was 2019. What happened a year later? 40,000. A year after that, 65,000. Um, from 3,000, and that's after people thought Bitcoin was done when the 2017 rally uh, fell apart. So that's why I try to keep an open mind. I'm skeptical about a lot of things that have to do with crypto. I'm nervous about the regulatory environment, just like everyone else. But I, I force myself in times like these where nobody really wants to talk about it, I force myself to remember there have been other times like this before and ignore it at your, your own risk. Do you have a prediction? Do you have a price in mind that you are uh, looking at in the next no. year or two? No. You just think higher. Um, I, I think I'm, become, I'm starting to become a Bitcoin maximalist just in the sense that when there's really negative news on the industry, like Coinbase um, being, being uh, sued, and then I see Bitcoin USD up $700 a coin, I say to myself, oh yeah, that was the original premise, that this was something that no one's in charge of, that all of the holders are collectively in charge of, um, but it, it, it lives in its own world. Those days where there's a huge lawsuit or a regulatory action or a major exchange has an outage or something to that effect, and you see BTC go up, even when the shit coins go down, you see Bitcoin higher. It's, the, it's that reminder of, oh yes, this was the original premise. There probably should be something that's independent of all human judgment, oversight, cognitive phallus, uh, uh, foibles. That's that Bitcoin is still that thing. So it's not that I don't think anything else can work out, but I'm starting to become more and more positive about Bitcoin as I become negative on a lot of the other things in the industry. So having said all that, what's the allocation? How much of the portfolio are you putting into Bitcoin? So it's an unmanaged index, meaning we launched it, amazing timing, I think Thanksgiving of 2021. <laughs> uh, thank God it's not a hedge fund because that high watermark would be a tough one. We launched it with the premise that we have to adjust it if it's just market cap weighted, it's gonna be 95% Bitcoin, or 90% Bitcoin, 10% ETH, and maybe a half a percent of everything else. So we adjusted it from the start, and um, Bitcoin and, and Ethereum were lower in the index than their market cap weighting of the whole asset class at that time. I think there were 11 holdings, one of them already went to zero, uh, which was Terra. But the other holdings, so long as they don't end up on the regulator's list of securities, will stay in there, and it's unmanaged. And unmanaged is in line, as I mentioned before, with our investment philosophy. The crowd, the users, are gonna decide which protocols are winners and successful, and which aren't. And the ones that aren't will gradually have less and less impact on what the index does, and the winners will get bigger within the index, and that will be the driving force behind how the strategy does. Not me, not Barry Ritholtz, 
um, you know, not an analyst at Wisdom Tree. So we, we basically set it up with, with, with the, the coins that are in it, and then we let the market decide, um, just as you would with the S&P 500. And what about within the overall client portfolio? What percentage of the total portfolio you're managing for the client are you going to put this in? It's very small, and it's client-dependent, and it's more about the amount of risk they're willing to assume for a potential return. Um, but we've got a lot of guidelines around that. The other thing to keep in mind is everyone at my firm client-facing is, is doing financial planning work before they're building portfolios and we're working with rich people. So we don't have clients that need a 500x return to meet their goals. They're, they're already very wealthy. So there's nobody that's allocated to the strategy that actually needs um, a large amount of it to get to their financial goals. So single digits, generally? For the most, for the most part, yeah. And what do you do beyond advising whether or not they should own crypto, what are you doing in the area, for example, of estate planning when it comes to crypto? I don't think it's come up with, with a lot of cases just because um, most estate planning work is not being done with people who are in the age group that would have a lot of exposure to crypto. Uh, I'm sure it's going to become an issue over the next 10 years, though. How about taxes? Uh, tax is something that, as a firm, we've gotten uh, a, lot, a lot deeper on. We actually have enrolled agents and uh, CPAs who are filing uh, taxes for clients. And so obviously having um, the knowledge to say this might be a tax loss harvesting opportunity. Uh, all of last year, frankly, was a tax loss harvesting opportunity. Um, understanding the difference in taxation rates between something like collectibles and crypto and equities. And, you know, this is all stuff that clients don't really necessarily know. So being able to speak to them at that level, I think, is helpful. So when you get client questions uh, about it, what are you hearing the most? What are clients asking about? Is it going to come back is a big one. Um, and, and the answer is? I think it will. I don't know, I don't know in what form. Will, will, keep in mind, there was a time in 2021 where it looked as though there was going to be a flip. And uh, Ethereum was going to be a bigger protocol than Bitcoin. And that's something that still could happen. Uh, I think a lot of the enthusiasm came out of ETH because the NFT market dried up um, and the staking, uh, so much of which was done using Ethereum, effectively became illegal. Uh, I don't know if it'll stay that way, but that's how the regulators see it. So a lot of the volumes and a lot of the interest in ETH has gone away, but I still look at it as... Um, Bitcoin with more utility. The problem is going to be if and when the SEC decides ETH is a security. And they might have some ground. I, I'm sure you have an opinion on this. I'd love to hear from you. They might have some grounds to do it. Ethereum operates like a corporation. It just isn't taxed as a corporation and they don't call themselves a corporation. But the foundation is very much influential um, to the point where pretty much every 18 months, they make a decision to make a change to the way the protocol works, and then they get enough buy-in from the miners and, and the users um, to get enough adoption that, that that change takes effect. I don't think anything like that can happen in Bitcoin. The fact that there is that level of coordination and there is this foundation that's 
sort of quasi overseeing the way the, t the, the protocol functions leads me to believe that there is some risk that a regulator might want to try uh, and say, you know what, actually, this looks and acts like a, like a stock with a board of directors and a shareholder base that votes. It's a security. It was more clear, I believe, when it was a proof-of-work protocol that it was not a security, yeah. which is why Gensler has said in the past, clearly, that Bitcoin and Ethereum are not securities. But now that they have shifted to... to proof-of-stake. Uh, it weakens that position. Doesn't stake sound like stockholder? I mean, yeah, they're from the same Latin root, I would imagine. I stake, stock. I think it's a coincidence. Okay. All right. Uh, I just made that up. I don't yeah. speak Latin. Yeah, I know you did. Um, so I, I think it weakens the argument, and Gensler has said that he is reconsidering whether or not Ethereum uh, is a security or not. What is really interesting to note is that in the SEC's suit against both Binance and uh, Coinbase, when they listed the securities they are alleging that they're trading as unregistered securities, they did not name Ethereum. That's right. Uh, and some observers are noting that the reason that they didn't name Ethereum is not because the SEC feels that they are not securities, but because the SEC is too afraid to go after the big dogs. I want to highlight something that I thought was interesting and, and get your take on it between the two lawsuits. So they would drop the day apart. The uh, Binance lawsuit is, I mean, that's, Binance is, it, it comes off, there's heavy boiler room vibes to what they were doing. They, they, I think they have this guy dead to rights. They have a U.S. subsidiary that they claim is operating independently. Then they have text messages. They have witnesses who work there. They have emails where the parent company is directing the U.S. subsidiary uh, on ways to sneak uh, business with U.S. hedge funds um, onto the platform and calling them VIPs and opening up backdoors. That's one. Two, the commingling stuff is terrible. And then three, just the optics of people inside of the organization telling him we're running an unregistered exchange. I think like all of that combined makes that significantly worse. Commingling, by the way, it doesn't, it doesn't matter crypto. Any asset class, it's like one of the number one no-nos is, is, is commingling of anything. So I think that one's very different. The Coinbase one is the more interesting one for our purposes here, because I think that's the one that's going to end up in a court and the central question of, are these securities or are they not? And if they are, how can you tell? When you hear about people in the industry pleading, begging for clarity, there is clarity. There's the Howey test from the 1940s. The industry just doesn't believe it applies to them. That's what's going to be resolved in the matter of SEC versus Coinbase, the, the Binance thing is just, just looks like a criminal enterprise to me. Do you agree with that, that uh, difference between those two suits? Yeah. And if you were here at uh, this event last year, you saw from this stage several warning you that Binance was coming. We didn't warn you about FTX, sadly, but Binance is a... I believe, a study in foregone conclusions. Um, there's no question. And it is a shame, and it's evidence of the SEC's behavior that they filed their lawsuit against Coinbase the day after. The SEC is trying hard to link the two in the public's mind 
to paint the entire crypto industry as bad. By you, you see it everywhere. Binance and Coinbase—they're linked together because the lawsuits occurred a day apart. They did. They named. Um, they named CZ personally in the Binance suit, but not Brian. But not Brian Armstrong. Right. Why do you think that is? Because CZ is doing, I believe, as you've much, said, much worse. Much he, worse CZ is a lot closer to SBF yeah. than BA. Getting all this. Uh, <laughs> Um, so, uh, yeah, so I, I think that uh, there's a reason that they're doing what they're doing against Binance, and this is more of the house cleaning that we need, uh, so it's overdue, what, what but you, that has nothing to do with what's happening at Coinbase. The concern I have big time, though, Josh, is that while I think you're probably right that the courts will resolve this question as to whether or not digital assets need to conform to the Howey test or some other uh, regime, my concern is that this court process will take years. And in the meantime, we're stuck trying to figure out what to do. What do you, I'm curious what you think about this. There is an alternate universe where all of the companies that did their best, they, all right, they may be selling unregistered securities in the eyes of the regulators. I don't think they think they are, is number one. But number two, there is an al alternative universe where the Coinbases and the Geminis and the Grayscales who made it a point to go above and beyond hiring compliance people, investing a lot of money in legal help and, and really trying to communicate with the public in an open and honest way. And then when the regulators said, come in and talk to us, they tried to do that. There is a universe where they were rewarded for having tried to do things the right way. They may not have liked the outcome, your ETF is still denied, but thanks for meeting with us. <laughs> you're, you're still not allowed to trade these eight you know, tokens because we think they're securities, but thanks for meeting with us. In that universe, I feel as though there would be much more widespread uh, adoption of crypto amongst other intermediaries like family offices and, and wealth managers. But we don't live in that universe. We live in a universe where come in and meet with us, come register with us, hey, thanks for coming, here's your lawsuit. That's, I mean, that's the way that things played out in this world that we live in. And that's gotta be concerning um, for, for people in the, for, for you, for others in the industry. Like, is there even a right way to do this? This is the challenge as to how we engage and why I'm not shocked at the survey results we had this morning that most of you own crypto, but most of you are not recommending it to clients. It's because firms are saying, we don't see the business case. Forget about the investment case, forget about fiduciary, forget about client value. From a business owner, a shareholder of the RIA or the broker-dealer, or the exchange, or the custodian. If you're Merrill, if you're Schwab, if you're a major, uh, large AUM uh, RAA, and you're saying to yourself, we have thousands, maybe even millions of clients, we're managing billions of, maybe even trillions of assets, we're a household name, why would we want to say yes to crypto acknowledging that if we say yes, the allocation will be low single digit, one or 2% maybe of assets, why would we want to risk our entire enterprise and our EBITDA and our margins and headlines in the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post for a lousy one or 2% allocation so to what, an asset okay, class? Okay, so what will change that? The regulatory clarity, 
the elimination, or I should say cessation, of regulation by enforcement so that firms know that if they go do something, they are not going to get slammed in the future for doing it. The SEC is saying to Coinbase, yes, we allowed you to be a public company. Yes, we knew that you were going to be an exchange trading crypto assets. And now, several years after we told you, go ahead and do it, we're telling you that you have been breaking the law for doing it. So How does that make any sense? So they would push back and say, we don't allow companies to do anything. We, we oversee the filings that they submit. We don't say, you have permission to, to run a crypto exchange. And Coinbase's response to that would be, we have asked you over 30 times, are these coins and tokens securities Give us the clarity because we only want to offer those that are not securities. Coinbase, and the SEC has refused to answer the question. Coinbase went public in February of 2021? Okay. I believe so. Okay. Jay Clayton's last day at the SEC was the day before Coinbase went public. Is that true? Uh, was it? January 20th or something. Like he, like he was replaced yeah. when Biden came yeah, in right. in January 21. Mm-hmm. So I think Coinbase got in just before the new SEC regime could get their like pencil sharpened and their nameplates on the door. So you're saying that... Uh, I don't know, you're, I don't you're, know that you're Coinbase saying, goes public six months later. So you're saying that Gensler never would have uh, permitted them to well, be... Well, what has company. he permitted? You know what I mean? So it's an interesting theory that... Yeah, but you know, this country has what we call the Monroe Doctrine, and no president has invalidated that, even though that's over 100 years old at this point. So just because Gensler comes in... I don't think the president has anything to do with it. I think No, my point is that there's precedent in this nation. And if you have uh, a, a regime in place, a protocol in place, a process in place that your predecessors have endorsed and validated and verified, for you to come in and do a 180 on it, that creates an inconsistency yeah, and I don't, turmoil. That, I agree. I don't think it's great for business, but let's acknowledge we have an FTC that's blocking the Microsoft Activision uh, deal. It's not going to happen. Um, significant slowdown in a lot of M&A. Maybe needed in the tech space. Maybe we don't need the fangs to get twice the size through mergers and acquisitions. That is a difference from the FTC under Trump um, where I, th- I forget who was... I forget who was running it, but I'm pretty sure the person who was was not anti-merger, anti-acquisition. So in this case, it's an interesting thought experiment. By the way, Jay Clayton now, I don't know if you guys know what he does. He works for Coinbase. Uh, he, he, ended up working, he ended up working with uh, Eric Peters, uh, a friend of mine, Eric Peters, who is One River Asset He management. is far more supportive of crypto today than he ever was yes. as SEC chair. Right. So, so uh, One River very quietly got acquired by Coinbase. It's like the internal asset management firm within Coinbase, and Jay Clayton's on the board of advisors. Um, so anyway, had Coinbase tried to go public in April or May of 2021, it might not have happened. So the argument of you let us go public, Jay Clayton let you go public. I was not my SEC. Yeah, but you're stuck with it. You know, we've right. got NATO, and just because a given president doesn't like how NATO operates doesn't mean we abandon NATO. This is the well, we whole. Al- we almost did. But. That's my point. <laughs> All right, one last question, then we're, gonna turn it, yeah, then we're gonna turn it to you. 
Um, by the way, you did mention we don't live in that universe. Yeah. Well, we don't live in the universe you've described either okay. uh, just now that um, we've got to deal with the universe we are living in. So Agreed. two final Agreed. questions for you. First, uh, and then we're going to turn it over to you, so have yours ready. Um, what is it that we should be doing as a result of this conundrum? You know, we're all sitting here commiserating over you know, the what was us scenario uh, brought about by the SEC behavior. Translate that into behavior for us. What yeah. should advisors be doing in the world of crypto as a result of this situation? It's a great question. I think you, you've got to stay up to date on all of these developments that uh, Rick and I have been talking about and be able to converse on the topic because the next $100 million, $200, $300 million worth of new client assets you onboard, there will be an increasing likelihood that those clients are interested in crypto or even fluent in crypto, and you don't want to be the financial advisor who doesn't understand a part of that client's financial situation. So the simplest, you don't have to dedicate your life to, to cryptocurrency, but just make sure that you're aware of what's going on, not dismissing of the entire asset class just because we're going through a, a tough regulatory patch. Um, and, and, and again, I want to emphasize this. I don't know if we have to go to 10,000 on Bitcoin first, but there will be uh, dramatic rallies in the future. And every time that happens, people that are curious about the asset class are going to become more curious and new wealth is going to be created. So we're at about 26,000. I think we hit 32,000 is the high for this year, right? Okay. Um, if I had given you all of the headlines this year, the major headlines pertaining to crypto, if I had given you all of the stuff, SBF stuff, and all of the fallout from the events of 2022, and then Coinbase lawsuit, and Binance lawsuit, and one thing after another, if I just served you up those headlines in January, and I said to you, halfway through 2023, here's the news, where's the price of, uh, of Bitcoin? You're probably not guessing that it's gone from 15,000 to 30,000. Mm -hmm. You're probably not. You're probably saying, oh man, 5,000. So it's really important that we remain humble and we remind ourselves that we don't know what's going to happen. We might have educated guesses, we might have hunches, we might have research confirming what we think, but in the end, the market's going to decide. Don't be the person who gets really excited about crypto at 100,000, uh, Bitcoin 100,000. Don't be that person because that is not um, doing any service for your investors of any kind. And final question related to all that, um, what aspects of crypto are the areas that we ought to be paying attention to? You talked a lot about you know, being a Bitcoin maximalist and you ought to be you know, last man standing kind of thing if it does blow up. But what other categories? We've got altcoins, NFTs, DAOs, DeFi, the metaverse. Where should we be paying particular attention? So I actually think DeFi is going to have its own prolonged crypto winter long after the overall industry's crypto winter ends. Um, because of the regulatory picture, they do not like staking. They see it as some combination, some unholy combination of junk bonds, shadow banking, unregulated security, like all rolled into one. Um, and that's a lot of what goes on in DeFi. And I don't have a strong opinion about whether or not that staking should be legal, illegal. I've never done it. I've never utilized it. I, frankly, I've never believed in it. 
Um, but without that, it, the Ethereum can't exist. Right. Uh, which is why I'm becoming more of a, a Bitcoin maximalist day by day. I've never believed that you could sort of safely put money somewhere and earn returns of 20% just because some short seller somewhere was trying to borrow your, your crypto for some other purpose or some hedge fund had some other uh, use for it. It, it. it was always a bridge too far because I know the stock loan business. I, w- I worked at a broker-dealer for 11 years. So those numbers, those yields never looked reasonable to me. Um, so thank God I stayed out of, out of staking. But I would, I, my personal opinion, I would be most excited about the potential for authentication and what blockchain's role in authentication um, could be. I have a friend who's launched a startup uh, this year with some pretty uh, well-known names in the music business backing him. And what he's doing is a very offline business. He's basically taking music memorabilia and authenticating it on the spot, like backstage at a concert. Eminem rips off a white shirt that he's sweated through, drops the white shirt on the floor. They will pick it up, take a picture of it, authenticate that that is Eminem's shirt from the show he played at the Detroit Palace on this date, and that piece of memorabilia could sell for $5,000 on the internet. And it's authenticated on the spot. And that's a big deal because the FBI says half of all memorabilia is fraudulent. That's right. So I'm very excited about this concept of verification and authenticity. I think it's the next bull market. I think because of how much fraud and fake stuff goes on, not just in memorabilia, but really all over the place. So what you're describing is um, you're excited about tokenization and NFTs because that's what that whole category is. I think so. And I think it's going to be a way for you to be able to verify that what you're investing in or what you're trading or what you're accumulating um, is what it's supposed to be and all other versions of it are not. Authentication is going to become very important in the age of AI. We already have... Uh, fake Drake songs. We already have, you know, all kinds of things that are going to take place with film, with television, with music. The, the amount of fake or artificial things that are going to cre- be created and circulate is going to lead to a backlash where the bull market is going to be anyone who can authenticate things. The blockchain, in my opinion, is uniquely situated to be applied, a technology to be applied to that problem, and I think can be very easily adopted now that we've got 15 years of people experimenting with blockchain projects. So if you ask me, like, where am I going to see crypto in the world other than in trading or doing things that involve other crypto, the realness market, the the authenticity, uh, the verification market, that's where I think you're going to see a real-world use case uh, that's going to solve a very big problem. Let's go to your questions. Uh, raise your hand if you've got one. We've got microphones coming around uh, the room. So uh, raise your hand. Here comes Nicole. Good morning. Um, I'm hoping it doesn't come to this, but there's been commentary written that uh, Gensler and the SEC is essentially going to drive the industry offshore um, or out of the U.S., which is unfortunate for innovation um, on our shores. Um, do you see that as a possibility, and, and if so, how do you see that playing out? Yes, that is clearly a potential outcome. Coinbase, Gemini, A16Z, and others are already 
filing applications to operate in other countries, that is a very possible outcome. Over here, is there a question? Hey, Josh, welcome to uh, Texas. Uh, you've got a room filled with advisors. Your uh, new branch in Austin, how's that going for you? Oh, thank you for asking. So, so far, so good. We, we love the city. We have a lot of fans and a lot of uh, followers here. So having uh, a branch in Austin made a lot of sense. We just, we never found the, the right advisor until last year. And ironically, we met him in Houston. Uh, but we, we've got somebody on the ground in Austin, and we're going to spend a couple of days meeting with our clients and potential clients here. And we're, 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 we're loving it. We're eating a lot of barbecue. It's all good. <laughs> so just a quick follow-up on that. If any of the advisors are interested in reaching out, how do they do that? Hiring at RitholdsWealth.com. Thank you. Question over here. Two questions, but if I can't get two in, you can kick one out if I mean a question hog. But assuming the SEC um, makes some of these things securities and register them, that's fine. That's good for the U.S., but what does, how does that affect the world? And number two, a little bit of a different view um, for the SEC, uh, we're an RIA, and I don't, I'm not saying this is right, but you know, we don't go to the SEC and say, can we do this or that? Is this a security or is it not a security? I thought their role is to enforce. So shouldn't have Coinbase maybe have just uh, registered these tokens as securities and they would have said yes or no? Well, they claim they tried to. Is that right? There are two issues. One is they claim they tried to and the SEC has rejected applications or refused to answer whether or not registration is necessary. Second, Coinbase isn't the creator of, say, Solana. Isn't it interesting that the SEC has accused Coinbase of selling Solana which the SEC says is an unregistered security. What the SEC didn't do was go to Solana Foundation and tell them that they're in violation for creating and issuing an unregistered security. It's kind of like the mutual fund share class debate, isn't it? You get nailed by the SEC or FINRA for selling a certain share class, but what they don't do is criticize the fund industry for creating the share class in the first place. So this is the issue. They, they're not accusing Coinbase of creating it. They're accusing them of selling it. And this is partly why it's so confusing and complicated for Coinbase. They're like, we didn't know that it had to be registered because you didn't demand that Solana do that. Solana didn't register it. There was no suggestion they needed to register it. It's existing in the marketplace. We're trading it. There are companies that trade comic books and they trade gold and they trade rare coins, cars. They, they trade cars and artwork. Nobody's accusing them of selling unregistered securities. So why did we have to assume that we were doing the same? In fact, because we were curious, we asked the SEC, are we? And the SEC, over 30 times, has refused to answer. That's the situation we're in. So what happens overseas? Nobody cares outside the U.S. This is a U.S. regulatory thing, and this is why Bitcoin's price has risen in the face of these lawsuits. Nobody in Europe or Asia or Africa or South America care about what's happening in the U.S. because this is only affecting U.S. investors and their access to these assets via exchanges and custodians that are operating in the U.S. So nobody around the world cares what's going on. Now, other regulators will. They'll follow the lead. Uh, we pay attention to Europe, which launched MICA, the Markets in Crypto Assets, which is a major piece of legislation that the European Union just passed a week or two ago. 
other nations pay attention to what they're all doing because we try to follow the trend. But aside from that, the investors themselves don't really care. It's like, you know, do I care that in Great Britain they drive on the other side of the road? I don't, unless I'm there, I don't care. So it's got nothing to do with me buying a car. Another question. Yes, yes, good morning. Uh, so uh, along the, the lines of, you know, roles, SEC enforcement, and then also along the idea of, I think Ricky brought it up, what should the financial uh, professional world be doing about, um, you know, in, in this environment? It's, you know, enforcement, SEC. Policy is supposed to be Congress. What should the financial professional world be doing about, you know, it's going to come down, Congress has to take action here. This I, is where these lawsuits are yeah. going, in my opinion, right? What should we be doing about so I, I don't think it's anything for the financial industry to do. You know, they can lobby. There doesn't seem to be a lot of energy for traditional securities firms to lobby on behalf of crypto. Um, but I, I do think we'll get a court case. It might take years. The result of that will be finally there will have to be some legislation specific to digital assets written. I don't think that you're going to get the rules first until you get the outcome of the case. Do you, do you agree with that? Uh, I might have six months ago, but... Uh, in think Congre the rules will come first? Yeah, I, th I think they're coming on simultaneously. Um, okay. We have a really new level of anger by Congress over Gensler's behavior at the SEC. Uh, Patrick McHenry and the House Financial Services Committee, his counterpart at the House Agriculture Committee, you know, one handles the SEC, the other handles the CFTC, and they have jointly, this is rare, they have jointly created legislation to provide the crypto clarity that hasn't existed. They introduced the bill a week and a half ago. They're expecting it to get marked up in the next two to three weeks. It's going to be subject to a vote in the House within a couple of months, kicked over to the Senate where you have uh, Loomis and Gillibrand and their legislation. They are very confident that they're going to have bipartisan crypto legislation before the end of this term. That I wouldn't have said in January. Okay. So that's exciting. Simultaneously, it looks like the court is going to rule in the Coinbase uh, lawsuit against the SEC, where they're trying to force the SEC to declare whether or not Coinbase is behaving incorrectly. That is going to have, we think, a ruling pretty soon. So there's wide expectation that within the next two years, we're going to have the clarity that everybody has been clamoring for. Now, that clarity may not be what we want to hear, I want a 65-mile-an-hour speed limit. We may get 25, but at least I'll have a number, yeah. and that's what's lacking at the moment. So I'm, I'm a little more optimistic than I was. One more question. Hey, um, I'm sorry. This may be a, a very silly question for most of the people that are in this room, but for those of us that are catching up at the back, why is it a problem if they're deemed as being securities? That, I love that question. Wouldn't we la rather live in that world where everybody knows where they are? So as a non if you're an exchange, there are huge ramifications for whether or not they're securities. If they are, you're violating the law every minute of every day. If you are an investor, an end investor, um, the ramifications, I think, are potentially positive uh, just in terms of more transparency from these foundations and, and policymakers that have some level of control over the protocols. So it actually might turn into a positive if they are declared to be securities. The problem is um, the people in the middle. If you're somebody selling these to investors or if you're an advisor trying to advise on these as assets, 
that that's where the 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 conundrum lies our approach has been to pretend that they are securities for the time being act as if our responsibility over that portion of the portfolio is no different than it is for stocks ETFs mutual funds closed end funds uh, whatever else we're doing um, especially from a fiduciary standpoint yes and there's one other category in addition to the two you cited Josh and that are the crypto bros the original folks who were in the Bitcoin community back in 2009 and 2010, their whole thing was anarchy. They loved the DeFi element of crypto and the fact that this would supplant and replace fiat currencies. Registering these as securities kills that and turns this into a CFI world, which is the antithesis. Ge- Gemini, of- Gemini's marketing campaign was the revolution needs rules. <laughs> so, which is a contradiction in terms. Which is, which is fun. Uh, and so that's the reason everybody in the crypto community is you know, upset about this. The, right, the crypto libertarians right. do not, they, they would rather it go to zero than uh, right. be, be regulated right. like it's a stock right. market. So, so their day is over, their time has passed, they lost, and they need to get the hell out of the way. In other words, there's 1% of the world that are in that camp, but if we're gonna get the other 99% of the world engaged, we've gotta work within the financial system rather than trying to replace it. Um, So that's a big part of the underlying philosophical debate that is going on in and outside the crypto community. Uh, The financial services industry, headed by the SEC, is basically saying, we're not having any of that. You can do what you wanna do, but work within the rules for consumer protection. And so that, and let me just close on this one element. It kind of says it all. Financial Times, I don't know if you noticed uh, this story a couple of weeks ago, asked a series of questions to Binance. They said, where are you headquartered and who is your primary regulator? And Binance refused to answer. Do you have a board of directors? Who are they? Who are the independent directors? They refused to answer. Who's your auditor? What's the most recent year for which you have audited financials? Which entity was audited? They did not answer. Are client assets held in segregated accounts? They did not answer. Do you segregate your trading and custody activities? They did not answer. Why the hell would you want to do business with a company that operates this way? So this is the part of the due diligence process we've got to engage in to help steer our clients. Look, it's already a risky asset. We know that. There's no reason to pile on the risks by dealing with a platform. Like counterparty risk is unnecessary. Exactly. This, right. is, this is how the FTX scenario blew up. Coinbase was asked the same questions and answered every single one of them. Because they're a public company. They provide full disclosure. And that's the world of difference between the two. Last thing before we end... Talk about future-proof. Oh, future-proof, yeah. Crypto and digital assets is among many topics that we're going to cover. It's uh, September 10th through 13th. I appreciate you giving me the chance to talk about it. Today, we actually announced 50 more speakers. So there's a full agenda online, futureproof.advisorcircle.com. And uh, we announced uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of big speakers uh, previously and then a whole new set of speakers today. Um, it's going to be part festival. Uh, the whole thing is outdoors. It's on the beach. 
in Huntington Beach. The city loves us. They gave us a lot of resources to do this. It's a lot of fun. And, it's, you know, it's and a, Rick has been there. It's and, a festival environment, yeah. Yeah, uh, Method Man and Red Man are headlining. We'll have all kinds of bands and rappers and DJs, and uh, that's at night, during the day, we do work. Uh, <laughs> Bring your laptop, but uh, it's a really it's a really cool environment, and uh, I think it's the future of uh, financial advisory events uh, because it really feels like an event, and I hope you guys can check it out. That's downtown Josh Brown, ladies Thank and you, gentlemen. Everybody. Thank you, thank you, Rick. CNBC's downtown Josh Brown with me at the fifth annual DACFP Vision Conference in Austin. In coming weeks here on the podcast, I'll be presenting you with additional conversations from the conference. Right now, though, you can check out the photos and other highlights of Vision. It's all on my Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages, and the links are in the show notes. The Truth About Your Future is sponsored by Global X ETFs. With volatile fuel prices and growing concern about the environment, consumers are embracing alternatives. Should your portfolio do the same? At Global X ETFs, we specialize in investments that look beyond household names, providing access to companies in emerging areas like electric vehicles and lithium battery production. So whether you're interested in EVs, hydrogen fuel cells, or another green technology, there is a world of opportunity to explore. Visit GlobalXETFs.com to learn more. Support for Rick Edelman's podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Meet Henry, an everyday person who enjoys reading science fiction, keeping in shape at the gym, and spending time with family. He also participates in progress by investing in a fund that supports innovative ideas. Invesco QQQ ETF allows you access to innovators of the NASDAQ 100, so you don't have to be a rocket scientist to help push progress forward. Anyone can become an agent of innovation. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETFs' risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. The NASDAQ 100 Index comprises the 100 largest non-financial companies on the NASDAQ. You can't invest directly into an index. Before investing, carefully read and consider fund investment objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in prospectus at Invesco.com. Invesco Distributors, Inc. If you like what you're hearing, be sure to follow and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Apple, Google, Spotify, YouTube. Follow and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Have a great weekend. I'll see you on Monday. The Truth About Your Future with Rick Edelman has been brought to you by Global X ETFs, dedicated to providing investors with unexplored intelligent solutions, and by Invesco QQQ. Anyone can become an agent of innovation with Invesco QQQ, Invesco Distributors, Inc. Get the truth about your future with Rick Edelman. It's the truthayf.com. AYF.com.